Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. Every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Inner Reflections is the first of a trilogy. It is an experimental social commentary film structurally that works in mixed genre, combining three mutual timelines with aspects of documentary, horror, science fiction, satire, and more. Challenging convention, the two hour and 45 minute work is grounded in a distinct sociological perspective surrounding the subject of public health and human well-being. The film is directed by Peter Joseph, and he is the author of a best-selling book called The New Human Rights Movement. Inner Reflections is a fantasy that extends the book's academic content into a more creative form. Very interesting film, and one that took me a minute or two to get used to in terms of the presentation of it. But after you settle in, it really is a film that grabs your attention, and I'm, I'm glad it did. The film, again, is called Interreflections, and we're joined today by the director and writer of that film, and that would be Peter Joseph. Peter, welcome to Film School Radio. Thank you, Mike. I really appreciate you having me on. Thank you so much. I'm, like I said, uh, off mic. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. There are so many things in this film that are food for thought, and I know that's what you intended. But what made me feel good about myself in some, on some level, and that is these are things I've been thinking about for a while myself, just okay. in terms of the way forward for humanity. Like, right. how do we get from what is obviously an unsustainable situation to a sustainable solution. So I'm glad on a lot of levels that I had the chance to watch this film. What inspired the book that this is based on and what inspired you to make the book into some version of the book into a, a feature film? Well, uh, the inspiration, I think, is the necessity that you've just touched upon, the necessity that we have to do something a little bit different, I think, as a civilization. Uh, we have a lot of things going astray ecologically, socially. Our public health is for the first time in human history in the modern age is starting to reverse its metrics. We're seeing population, um, excuse me, we're seeing uh, lifespans decline. We're seeing the Western world really start to fold in on itself when it's supposed to be this beacon of progress and, and wealth where it, we've hit a critical junction in humanity. So I wrote the book, The New Human Rights Movement to point this out and to take a more sociological perspective of what we're doing, as opposed to a polarized political perspective. One thing, you know, people will like to box you, you know, they say, oh, well, you must be a leftist if you believe this and this. It's just so sad that we have that kind of, you know, polarized debate when tr in truth, it's a public health science, epidemiological, sociological condition that we have to work on. It's the precondition as I use in the book. I don't wanna jump too far ahead here, but my whole thesis as an activist and the way I use art and media is to create the argument that if we that excuse me if we follow the social science and the epidemiological science of what makes a good healthy human being which is shared amongst the entire civilization and what makes us in harmony with the habitat which is a critical function we have an economic system and institutions built out of that system that are very much out of line and increasingly so as technology evolves and so on other things that we can touch upon so the new human rights movement was a very personal piece to me. It took uh, many years to write. Um, it's very heavily sourced and it's very academic. So with that kind of heavy, heaviness, being the artist that I am, I wanted to 
try to create something a little bit different that was more aesthetically driven that could kind of sneak behind the ego, as I'd like to call it. I think the social role of art is it sort of has a way to get behind that intellectual processing that blocks you in with your identity, uh, whether you grow up with music or you've you know, really been inspired by paintings or film. Uh, I think the effect is stronger than people realize. So this experiment with Interreflections was to take the core uh, information of that book, namely the, the commentary on what a sustainable society is, what a society that will promote public health, and of course, a non-authoritarian, truly democratic, balanced society. Uh, what, what is it about that? And instead of just relaying it in straight dialogue, I decided to you make this three-tiered structure. Um, the first tier is kind of a silent film fantasy horror movie, in fact, where it follows a character kind of labeled 23. That's, that's her associated name. And she's walking through modern society experiencing this and it's very much a horror movie and that's kind of the way i feel it when i look at contemporary culture the second layer is a debate scene which takes place in space with of course the earth in the backdrop that's some very important symbolism that dialogue was very much taken out of the book with the challenge of making a protagonist and antagonist satire because it's really a satire is what i'm doing there and the antagonist the simon character he pretty much represents the establishment view of humanity that we've we've kind of pushed forward since you know the Thomas Hobbes view of society. You know we are beasts. You know the human human condition is that of war. Thomas Malthus, whom I quote in the film uh, a couple of times, the whole film is kind of bracketed around the Malthusian view. Uh, hence, as you might remember, the Malthusian mandate, which is a, a narrative device I use in the film as well, which we won't go into that to spoil it. Um, so that, of course, you know, take the protagonist, antagonist, you know, how would they argue? And it was a really great challenge to do that between a forward thinking person based on public health science and the current establishment, the social Darwinistic worldview. And then the academics of the future, the third layer takes place about 100 years in the future. Um, I wanted to give the sense of hindsight. So what if we you know, talk about these issues, not in a traditional documentary way with you know, experts, anyone can do that. I wanted to find people, excuse me, I wanted to find an angle where I could make people feel like they're looking at today from the future, an improved future. So that's kind of the best summation I can give. Yeah, you. yeah, fantastic summation. It absolutely captures so much what the film structurally and thematically is about. I was thinking I was, as I was watching uh, the second, what you referred to as sort of the second element in the film, the the dialogue back and forth between the the two at the table um it's sort of i thought of it as a, some version of a my dinner with andre but kind of a more of a kind of a my my dinner with bezos might be more appropriate uh, protagonist antagonist in that in that particular situation but sure. this idea that and i think at the core of the of the uh, of the film's thematic thrust is this idea that wealth is in this current version of civilization and economics is based on consumption. Mm -hmm. The idea that in order to, you have to be on one side of that equation, either you have to be benefiting from people's consumption or you have, or you're the consumer and you have to be motivated to be that consumer. And is that, a, am I, am I being fair about the, that okay, kind of? That's, that's, a, that's an important theme uh, in the, at the, excuse me, at the root of our economy is this mechanism of buying and then, and then being employed and then getting purchasing power once again, and then continuing, you know, the cycle. And, you know, most economists, you know, economics 101, you know, it's discussed that way, but no one realizes that it's what's called in system science, a positive feedback loop. 
which if anyone's familiar with that, all it means is that there's nothing to control the regulation in case there's problems. It just keeps going. So right. what you have today, as, as I put in the dialogue, you know, with the John and Simon characters, I believe it's in the second part of the debate, the John character says something to the effect of, you know, we've been reduced to just being agents of consumption. That's paraphrasing. Right. And if you, because I mean, what are we doing? Our whole society is based on people having to figure out some way to sell somebody something else, whether it's your labor, whether it's your ideas. And it's not to say that there isn't progress built into that, but there's also a nefarious, um, unsustainable, particularly ecologically unsustainable phenomenon within it where we can't possibly have an economy where everyone's motivated to do that for the sake of the system's integrity. Look at what happened with COVID-19. You know, we had a 30% drop in GDP in the United States. And it's it's pretty much global collapse. The system can't work. Excuse me. It's pretty much collapse in general. But in the United States, it's pretty much collapse of the system if it wasn't for the outrageously amount of money, trillions of dollars the state puts into it, which means that the system itself lacks the integrity to be able to adapt to a circumstance when humans are unable to continue consuming. And right. frankly, it's kind of a good thing that we've been restricted right now. Right. Even though you could argue a lot of public health issues, but the fact that we've slowed pollution, which is catastrophically accelerating on this planet, as we all know, uh, because of the, the industrial slowdown, uh, in a way that's been positive. I'm sure you saw the images of, of areas of the world that you, for the first time, you could see the sky. You see those images uh, where industry, because it, it tells us something. So anyway, I don't want to ramble on too much about that. No, but, you're right. So when it comes to wealth, you know, you used that word wealth earlier. I, what is wealth? Wealth can't just be an item. It can't be a house. It can't, it's not necessarily what we create, right? It's the method by which we create. There's an underlying idea throughout the film, and it's coined by R. Buckminster Fuller, which you remember from the credit sequence. I feature uh, Bucky Fuller prominently because he's the sort of hidden protagonist to, against the antagonist of Thomas Malthus. So in that narrative throughout the whole film is that element. And what Buckminster Fuller contributed to the conversation was an idea called ephemeralization. And all that word means is that through time, we've been able to do more and more and more with less and less and less. So when you're able to have an industry that can take care of millions of people with a very, very low footprint on the planet, that is the institution of active wealth, doing more with less. That's the way people should think about it, as opposed to just stockpiles of goods or our ability to manufacture or things like that. So it's more of a process. And at the end of the day, if you're not sustainable with all this, if we can't find balance, you know, it's pretty clear the trajectory. You remember the scene with the train that flies off with the uh, Willy Wonka? You know, that's a little on the nose, but uh, I think that scene pretty much captures where we are um, in humanity right now. Yeah. There was an economist uh, from the Nixon era. I believe he actually worked in the Nixon administration. And he, he said something that has stuck with me since, and that is that an unsustainable trend is not sustainable. And that in many ways, again, going back to the theme um, of the film, Inner, inner Reflections, um, is that we, we are living in an unsustainable trend. Something to reinforce the notion of what you were talking about earlier about the positive uh, feedback loop. There was what I, the context in which I first heard that phrase had to do with the warming of the oceans mm, and yeah. that how, as they warm up, some of the currents around the world were starting to slow down because of the, the so much more fresh water, ice, iced water was coming into the oceans. It was going to have an impact on the ability of those currents to maintain. Yeah. And I kept, I kept thinking that, well, then if we fix what's going on now, how do you speed those currents back up? But it was, but that was because those currents were 
starting to slow down. That's a positive feed, uh, feedback loop that you're talking about. There's so much in this film to really kind of chew on. And uh, this is where I'd like to introduce what I mentioned to you off mic is this film, in addition to being very genre bending, different, the look of it, the feel of it, it looks sci-fi. Definitely a lot of the film has a sci-fi vibe to the look of it, but there are so many other experimental film elements in it. There are things in it that are just out of the ordinary, but I, I would, um, uh, as a way of, framing it for people just imagine a very cinematic version of the best ted talk that you've ever heard and i think that that's for me bringing that to, to, to for people to sort of understand why where i'm coming from when i haven't watched this film what was the most difficult kind of in actualizing your vision for this film for inner reflections what was it that challenged you most in terms of making it. I'm happy to answer that question. Let me step back just a little bit with respect to the TED Talk idea, because at the root of all of this is the communication, right? It's not art just for the sake of art, even though I clearly have done as much as I can to make it look good and sound good and all of that, and being aesthetically challenging. One of the hidden gems of the piece, if you notice the two characters in space, they begin on a stage, right? It starts with a theater, where there's an audience. Yes, that's right. And, that's and right. it returns to that numerous times through fourth wall breaks and, and things like, well, it's not really a fourth wall break in those instances, but, and that's at the very end where the other character comes into the theater and all three narratives come together, all three timelines come together where they're all sitting there watching the debate on stage, the great debate as it's called. And that, that really, that whole concept is a reminder to the audience that this isn't about the film itself. It's about what the film represents. It's yeah. like a, a meta level that I wanted to communicate. Whether people pick up on that is to be seen. As far as the challenge of the film, well, I announced this project, believe it or not, in 2012. <laughs> Eight years ago, I didn't, I started writing and, and outlining and then I got caught up with other things. And by around 2015 is when I was really prepared and it's been a solid on and off, just a little, few, few hairy things here and there in terms of uh, focus, but four or five years it took to get this together. And that's with literally me doing pretty much everything. That's an outrageous amount of work, thousands and thousands of hours. <laughs> because I'm not, a, I, I have my own, you know, I'm a, I have my own company, so to speak. I've hired people, freelancers, contractors. I did the casting, but I don't have like a team per se. So I dealt with, you know, loose contractors, you know, here and there for, especially the CG. Uh, that was a very big, very big challenge to get the 3D imagery. I mean, no independent film with such a low budget would think about doing this, having 80% of the film's content, not to mention almost three hours shot on green screen, because it's an enormous nightmare to make green screen look presentable at all. Um, and I have great respect for those that know how to do it. Luckily, uh, I was in that background too when I was in New York City working in advertising. We did lots of green screen shoots. So to answer your question, I went into this thinking I would be smart, that I would have you know uh, less need for physical resources if I shot on green screen. Like okay, you shoot on green screen, and then I hire some you know CGI artists, and it can't be that bad, right? Well, I was very very wrong on that one. <laughs> um, it's a very complicated and and te tedious process. If you get one little thing wrong when you shoot things on green screen, it can translate to many, many, many hours of fixing that's required. Um, so that aside, though, the writing was an, a, a, was a big challenge because the, th the three narrative concepts, the easiest, of course, was the academics of the future, the four women of the future that are talking about the past. The great transition, a, the great yeah. transition. Yeah, So they're in the future and it's the hindsight view. And that was relatively easy to write because you had the subjects. And I based it, of course, on the book. 
But the real writing challenge came to the, the silent film part because, well, I want to have a 45 minute section where it's pretty much just aesthetic. I, I've hit people with all this knowledge with the debate scene and the, and the academic scene. I want to give breathing room, so to speak. So that's why I, I pace it throughout. It's kind of like a commercial break, if you will, is the way I kind of <laughs> think about it. Um, and that, that posed numerous uh, challenges just intellectually to me even though I call myself an artist, but just trying to find a visual vocabulary with multiple symbolisms. If you really watch those scenes, they get deeper and deeper. I spent a lot of time building the symbolisms that no one would notice the first time they watch it. Um, in a way, the whole film kind of stands on its own. Like there, it's a series of vignettes. You could take any one of those sections. You could also, by the way, take all three layers and, and separate them and put them into individual shorts and they would still work on their own, which I actually plan on doing at some point just to, to mix it up a little bit. Um, I'm gonna separate those sections into, into reflections, a series of shorts. Um, but going to the debate scene, that I think was the biggest challenge because I'm putting myself in that position of the protagonist antagonist. Here's the old worldview and here's what I think is a productive, progressive worldview that needs to be thought about. And I, I spent so much time uh, <laughs> working on how to argue with myself. Basically. Well, I was just going to say, you were arguing with yourself in that. <laughs> right. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and both sides are, you know, very compelling arguments right. and back and yeah. forth. It's not as if there is a sort of a, you weighted it in any particular direction to make exactly. someone look better or worse. So these are all things that, this is the thing, watching uh, Inner Reflections, and that is that this is where we are. We are at an inflection point. I think I believe that to be true. I mean, I, I know by the collapse of so much of our ecological system, the, the, the signs are there. There is nothing out there that indicates anything else except that our the planet will survive. Will yeah. our place on this planet be sustainable moving forward? Will we be able to? And there's a whole lot of anthropological evidence that the the entity at the top of the food chain is the first to go in terms of the survival of the planet right it will right. continue to manufacture other life forms but if you if you misbehave at the top of the that food chain you're going to be the one that goes it, yeah. it, is that fair oh say? i think that's fair i think that's fair the only positive trend i see right now when you look at the the, you have the long-term argument, okay, well, the markets and capitalism have helped poverty and all of this. And, and it is true because with technology, you've had a robust increase in productivity right. and marginal cost creation where things have gotten cheaper. So yeah, you've raised the standard of living to a certain degree, but all of that has come at enormous cost because yeah. none of that process has been sustainable. Right. It hasn't been done with the thought of habitat um, synergy. And if, so if you look at current trends, that all, even the poverty number is starting to reverse and is dubious to begin with. I mean, 60% of the entire world lives on less than $5.50 a day. I challenge anyone out there, regardless of what country you live in, to try and live on $5.50 a day, right? I mean, that's pretty unbelievable. No. Oh. And then the ecological trajectories you know, need, doesn't need any debate anymore. If you look at anything coming from the United Nations, as far as biodiversity and, and climate destabilization, topsoil, everything is currently in decline. And as, a, as I said, the only positive trajectory, which is not necessarily a good thing, but what all of the establishment banks on is technology. Well, they say, oh, we're going to build yeah. machines and take the carbon out of the air. Oh, we're going to find new things to put into the soil, more fertilizers. They really believe this, this idea that just technology is going to save it in the trajectory we are. And I don't agree with that. I think you have to have solid system level, specifically economic change. And again, I want to reiterate to those listening that maybe have a boxed view 
it's not about capitalism, communism, or socialism. It's about a public health view. It's about a natural science view of what we need to do to adapt to make sure our children, you know, aren't on fire in about 30 years, because who knows how much worse it's going to get when you look at all the problems occurring. Well, I, I, I'm I'm living in California. I'm speaking to you from Southern California. As am, as am I. I'm in Los Angeles, so. Yeah, and we now have climate refugees in yeah. California. We have climate refugees around the United States right now as we speak. We're beginning to see climate refugees in America. Yeah, absolutely. To your point, technology cannot fix everything. This is a this is an outlook problem. This is a you know for those as you said you know you almost always have to issue this caveat. Well, I'm not anti-capitalist. I'm not this, I'm not that. But the fact of the matter is, and they always say, well, this whole uh, move towards a green new deal is a Trojan horse for the destruction of capitalism. That this is, this is how it's going to happen. It's not going to be, you know, uh, the, you know, communism won't come in and take over. It'll be whatever. I mean, you've yeah, heard all these things. If you're listening to us, you know what we're talking about. <laughs> yeah. No, this is about this. We're right now. We're coming to a point where we're at, we're talking about survival. Without, I just don't want to turn this into a complete Debbie Downer conversation. Oh, yeah, but, believe me, I, I get it. I, I get yeah. It. So go on, please. I, don't worry. <laughs> it, it's worth yeah. the conversation, and people need to think a little bit more proactively. It's unfortunate that even though you do have you know, a political constituency that has risen in the in America and across the world that's doing their best. You have all of the COP21 or whatever you call you of these conferences and all this stuff, all this energy. They're trying to do something to resolve the issues. But you'll find that very rarely, if ever, is there a structural criticism. Everyone's right. terrified, right. terrified to say anything about how business operates. And we have to get over that hurdle. I hate to say it, but business in and of itself, the mechanics as we know it, the market system of economics has fundamental structural flaws, and you don't need to be dismissed as some authoritarian communist to point that out. And it's no, bad. no, it also it also has a very bad habit. And I'll just say about every 10 years, it collapses. Yeah. And th that's another thing that we you know, we need to talk about. Why is why are we in a system and across the world? And I go back to that, and you quote it in the uh, in the film, which I thought was fairly clever of, of you to do the the scene from Network, where um, where where Ned Beatty is talking to Peter Finch across this long corporate, long huge table, and Mister Beale, you have tampered with the inexorable, you know, whatever. Oh, that whole scene is great the way you play it out in the film. So I really appreciate that. So well, please note that's how that was the influence for the scene. When I, I oh, network, yeah. I've always appreciated that movie because I think people don't really realize how brilliant it was. Um, and I was like, you know what? I love that scene. I love the the framework of it. And that's why I, the very beginning of the debate structure, he says just that line. Yeah. <laughs> and they both laugh. They do. Well, they should. And Absolutely. And by how prescient that film was. I mean, it, it's a little it looks a little dated some of the to watch it now. But what uh, Patty Chayefsky is talking about in that film is talking about is absolutely spot on the world we live in now. It is. I mean, I watched the, the the news hour and it feels like something I would see on Fox News today that they would see you would see the soothsayer. You would see all those kinds of people on on those on that program. Right. But. I, I just want to, again, this is a film that when you're watching Inner Reflections, when you go to check it out, it is going to be a film that is going to take a little bit of time to kind of settle into it because it just looks different. It feels different. But I think that you're going to very much be rewarded by what you get out of this film. And I certainly got more out of it than 
I expect it to. And I'm just, I just, yeah, I really, I'm really impressed with what you were able to do and especially knowing how difficult it was to, to do. I, I can yeah. tell by look, I've seen enough movies in my life to right. know what you were doing there was not for the faint of heart to try and pull off. I think one of the risks I see because it, it's right on the edge, I think, of, of a film that could have been made by a studio, but far more stylized. And, but yet it isn't a studio piece whatsoever. It doesn't, you know, there isn't a bunch of resources behind it. And I think the danger is, is someone, they don't really understand what it took to put it together, which how could they, of course, but if they don't, if they see it as like a multi-million dollar movie that was made and then put out there, they're gonna say, well, that was very awkward for such a production. But if they see it as something that was done by a completely independent filmmaker, literally, yeah. um, then I think they would appreciate it more on that level. Um, and I just say that in passing, I, I think about that. Um, but well, if, if, if you could have gotten a Ridley Scott interested, it's, this is kind of a Ridley Scott film, stylistically or sort of the yeah. look of it could have been. Is that my influences, believe it or not, were David Lynch, uh, Darren Aronofsky and of course, oh. Stanley Kubrick. Um, okay. To me, it's an odyssey. I look at this film as as a fantasy odyssey, kind of like 2001, even though I would never compare myself to the great Kubrick. But, you know, if you watch that film, it just takes you on this journey and deviates. You never really know where you're going to end up. Yeah. And that's that's the framework and structure of it. And then David Lynch was important to me, even though I, I think he's very challenging in times. It's very difficult sometimes to get through his work, but he has the courage to do aesthetic um, things that that just mix you up. Like they spin you around for a little while and you feel uncomfortable. And he's the only one I've ever known really that is able to make the audience uncomfortable and kind of make them feel good about that in a way, in the abstraction, in the avant-garde style. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, so I really appreciated that. That I don't, not a direct influence, but I think about David Lynch's work. Um, I did a lot when I was structuring this. And then people like Darren Aronofsky, like he produced that film Mother a little while back. I thought that was a greatly ambitious film because it, again, it challenged formula and it also did aesthetic things that were very awkward for the viewership. And that's why, you know, when it originally came out, even though he's huge, I mean, the guy, and he's a genius too. Again, I would never compare myself to such a high level filmmaking person. Of course, he has enormous resources simultaneously, but he got <laughs> zero. He got zero on Rotten Tomatoes for that film, which I thought was particularly fascinating. I don't think it's like that anymore. But uh, so there's my, well, you know, uh, this this film reminds me of Pi, to Pi, be honest right. with you. Right. Yeah, I can see that. It's very much that sort of discussion that back and forth about math and sort of the computer, all the different things were going really challenging the viewer. Right. And made for nothing. I mean, he made that for like a thousand dollars or some crazy thing. Yeah, uh, I think he was just out of college. Yeah, yeah, just an amazing film for what he. And I agree with you. And I, I, I think all of those uh, references are appropriate for this film as yeah. well. So we'll see what happens. I, my goal ultimately is to see social change, and I'm just trying different angles to do it. I never intended to have to work on this film for five years. It was, it was an experimental concept that just got bigger and bigger and bigger. It was never supposed to be two hours and 45 minutes long. <laughs> um, I just kind of let it become what it what it is. There's, there's an old artistic idea that if you know what you're going to do, then it's not going to be original, if that makes any sense. So I allowed yeah. myself a weird kind of vulnerability. There's certain improvisatory elements, like I introduced an Emily Dickinson character. There's a poem that I thought was very appropriate for its social consciousness. So suddenly the move, you know, the movie deviates into a little poem, which I thought was you know, very romantic and interesting to me. Again, can, continuing that vignette structure, right. which, which I think is, a, you know, it, if people want to stop and start the film, I can understand why, but I do encourage people to try and watch the thing the entire way through, even if they miss something. 
And then ultimately, I encourage people look at it and study it like you would something literarily. You know, it's yeah. you don't just read a book cover to cover and throw it away. You tend to stop and think about something or maybe research something. And I, I hope it yeah. inspires that. Yeah. yeah, I hope I think you're right. I hope I hope they do. What I love about the film is that it challenges you, as you said, it also I think really have to be honest with yourself if you're watching this. And that is that this film is giving you a lot of information about where we are, but it's also giving you in some ways a way forward to get beyond where we are, these limitations that we find ourselves facing yeah. and they're real and they're going to happen whether or not we quote unquote believe in them or not. Sure. This is the thing, just like the pandemic we don't, you don't have to believe in things that are happening for them to not affect your life right? or not believe in them or whatever. It's sure. just, it is, it is what we're at. And I want to let people know they can go to interreflections, interreflections, interreflectionsmovie.com. And they can also, should be aware that beginning on October 6th, it'll be available on VOD outlets. And I assume that some of the usual suspects, right? iTunes. Yes. Uh, it, the in, interreflectionsmovie.com will have the whole list, which I'm updating now. But it'll also be on some cable on-demand stuff as well, Comcast and Verizon and that whole litany of on-demand cable. But, you know, Prime and Hulu and Vudu and um, and Vimeo and uh, yeah, about five or six other ones. I don't have them right in front of me. But Yeah, go to interreflectionsmovie.com and that'll, that'll certainly help you find it. All right. Well, listen... Peter Joseph, thank you. I, I anytime, come back. What I don't know what you're going to do, and when that happens, I, I I thoroughly enjoyed the film, and I enjoyed our conversation. So, likewise. Uh, once again, the film is called Inner Reflections, and the, you can go to innerreflectionsmovie.com to find out more about it. We've been talking with author and filmmaker Peter Joseph. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mike. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio. 